Shalom. Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Burns, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder, Longmont area of Northern Colorado. This teaching was recorded in a live Midrashic setting. We've edited it for clarity, but you may notice some jumps where we've taken out inaudible comments and sidetracks. Enjoy the study. So we are in Ephesians, and last week we got through chapter 3, verse 13. And the thing that Paul was talking about is how the sacrifice of Messiah changed the regime in heaven. The other thing we mentioned is that God is dealing with a rebellion in the heavenly places as well as in the earthly places. So what Paul does in, in chapter 3 is reveals the mystery that the crucifixion of Messiah, which allows the Gentiles to be fellow heirs with the Jews or the Hebrews, was something that the principalities and powers in heaven did not understand. And had they understood it, they never would have crucified the Messiah. So that sort of gets us up to where we are today. And so continuing in this vein, Paul starts in verse 14 and says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And what I'm suggesting to you is the reason that he is bowing his knee before the Father is because of the revelation of the secret that had been given to him to show the secret that God had had from before the beginning of creation. I've been entrusted with a secret. I'm passing it on to you. And because I have been entrusted with a secret, I am bowing down before God. And that can be gratitude that he gave me the secret to reveal. It can also be awe at the depth of the plan that God had executed and it was such a deep plan that the principalities and powers in heaven didn't understand it until it was too late. And then verse 15, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So the prayer is that he will grant to the Ephesians the spirit to be strengthened with the, with the power of the Spirit. And then verse 17, so he wants you to be strengthened for the purpose that Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Messiah that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All right. So the, the prayer here is, he's bowing before the Father, and the prayer then is that they may be strengthened through the Spirit so that Messiah may dwell in their hearts through faith. Now this dwelling in your heart, what does it mean to have Messiah dwelling in your heart? Be careful now, because I'll read verse 16. According to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. So you have both Spirit and Messiah mentioned, and the power of the Spirit allows Messiah to dwell in your heart. So the comment was that, that the Messiah is also known in other places as the Word, 
And so having the word in your heart would then be the equivalent of having Messiah in your heart. I, almost. I, 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 that's, that's very close. I, I'm not sure I can say it so you can see the distinction, but I think there is one. One of the thing, reasons I'm pausing here is one of the shibboleths that happens in Christianity is Jesus dwells in my heart, right? And that means all sorts of things to all sorts of people, and most of them don't know what it means. I will suggest that this is a turn of phrase. So when I say that my wife Kay lives in my heart, does Kay live in my heart? No. What it means is I hold her in my heart, I hold my love for her in my heart, uh, she's on my heart and on my mind, but it isn't like I have this little statuette that's you know, plugging up my right ventricle. And so when, when Paul here is saying Messiah dwells in your heart, I think he's speaking in that same way. And so that's why I said I wasn't completely sold on your thought that Messiah is the word and the word is in your heart and that's what he means. What you said is true. Messiah is the word and you want to keep the word written on your heart. That's very true. But at least in my reading of this, it's, it's more in the case of you hold your husband in your heart, your children in your heart. Uh, yeah, in other words, that you hold them as part of you in that sense. Remember we said when we first started this that as you read other passages of scripture, it's very, very obvious that Paul has an affinity for this church and they have an affinity for him. You know, this is the last place he goes before he goes off to Jerusalem to be arrested and then sent to Rome. Their heart for study and heart for understanding the word, I think very much mirrors Paul's personality and temperament also. In other words, he's a, he's a guy that studies the word, he loves the word, he loves the details of the word. He, I mean, he, the fact that he's got this mystery that God has entrusted to him to reveal, all those kinds of things are scholarly kinds of things, and somebody who's a scholar you know, likes that kind of stuff. Okay? I, I like knowing stuff about Scripture. I like when somebody comes and asks me a question that I've got an answer and I know, you know something about it. That's something that pleases me because that's my temperament. And so what I'm suggesting to you is Paul's temperament and the Ephesians' temperament is sympathetic. And so when he is in captivity, because remember, if he's writing this from jail in Rome, which I think he is, the last thing that they told him is, hey, don't go to Jerusalem, because if you go to Jerusalem, you'll never come back. Because the la- that was the, sort of the last thing that last conversation that he had with this church and he said nope because remember again uh, somebody came up prophetically and took his belt and bound his hands remember that incident in the in the book of acts where you know as i say he's getting ready to step off and go to jerusalem and this guy binds his hands and he says if you go to jerusalem you'll be bound and, and all that kind of stuff so for them to be discouraged because he's in jail is perfectly natural because A, they're of sympathetic temperaments, they love each other, they warned him not to do this, and there he is. So for him to refer to that incident and say, hey, 
don't lose heart and, and then to encourage them is, is, is very appropriate and natural. We're down now, I think we're all the way down to 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the, in the ecclesia or the assembly and in Messiah Yeshua through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, I've, I've heard of this particular passage being the greatest oops in Scripture because it's very obvious that the letter ends here. But then he goes on for three more chapters. Okay? So he, he's sort of, and, and this is speculation. Okay, I'm just speculating here. But he sort of said what he's got to say, which is revealing the mystery, explaining to the Gentiles that they have an inheritance along with the Hebrews of the Jews, and that's sort of the, the, the subject of the letter up to this point. Okay? And I think at that point he was done writing his letter and was going to, you know, put a stamp on it and mount a slave up and send him off with the, with the letter. My speculation is that God reached out and jerked his chain and says, you're not done. So you have this second half of the letter that starts in chapter 4, and the subject matter and the tone there is different than the first three chapters. So the first three is sort of a revealing of the mystery, a doctrinal statement, if you will, of the position of the Gentiles now through the sacrifice of Yeshua. The next half is going to talk about fellowship, love, works, all of the things that Messiah is going to nail them for in Revelation 2. And again, this is, this is my speculation. This is you know, not based on anything except this is what I think. So do with it whatever you like. My perspective on scripture, especially prophecy, is prophecies are not given typically so they'll be understood by the people to whom they're given. So when Yeshua speaks in parables, he just flat states. It's not given to them to understand. And Isaiah, when he gets his commission, gets told, keep on speaking, but don't make them understand because they've grown dull. If it doesn't have any use to the people to whom it is directly delivered, what I will suggest to you is it's for people in the future so that when you're sitting by the river in Babylon wondering how you got there, you can go back now and read the scriptures and see from hindsight what God was talking about when they were given. And so in those scriptures also is the way back. And if, if you read the prophetic scriptures, what you find is not only this is why you're in exile, and we reading it from a couple thousand years in the future to when it was written can see, yeah, we see all that. That's why they're in exile. We understand that. And we also then see in there, how do they get back? And of course, in that is how do we get back? Because we're still in exile. What I'm suggesting to you is that this next four chapters is by way of prepositioning so that when Yeshua rattles their cage and says, you've lost your first love, repent and do the works that you did at first, 
they can say, what's that mean? And there's now something written there that tells them what that means. With that, chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's all one sentence. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What do you suppose that means? I mean, he's giving them instruction, right? And, and presumably they're supposed to do something in response to this instruction. What are they supposed to do? Ah, so you're suggesting that you look around for tasks worthy of your calling. I'm going to suggest it's, it's no more difficult than works. In other words, the way you walk is, biblically, is what do you do? It's sort of like we've said before. The, the Jews have a saying, don't tell me what you believe, I'll watch what you do and then I'll tell you what you believe. And so when he says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, I'm suggesting that he's telling them to do the things that the Torah says to do. Works. What I will suggest is there, there's, a, there's a couple of ways this can be taken. Go back to the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Where you have the Pharisee who is walking around like he's sitting on a ramrod. And he's real full of himself. He's really impressed with the calling that he's got. He's really impressed with his station in life. And he goes into the temple and explains, wow, thank you for this high station that you've put me in. And thank you for the fact that I'm not like that guy. And, and, and that, that's one way this can be taken. In other words, you can take it as, hey, you're a son of the king. Get your royal robes on and get yourself on your white horse and move up and down the street so everybody can see that you're a son of the king. That's one way it could be taken. I'm suggesting that the highest calling is service. And so service is expressed in works. And if we assume that this is prepositioned instructions, the problem that they have in Revelation is that they are not doing the works. Because remember in Revelation it says, you've lost your first love, repent, and do the works you did before. So the thing that's missing by then is works, and I'm suggesting that walk in this case simply refers to the works that God would have us do. And the other, as I say, the other way you can, which is probably closer to what Tom means, is walk so that you're blameless. In other words, you know, we don't spit and we don't chew and we don't go with folks that do. That can also be an understanding of that. In other words, make sure that your personal life is moral and ethical or above reproach. Well, it is a high calling. But as I say, I think the highest calling is service. Okay, if we... Wrestle that one to the ground, regardless of whether you agree with me or not. That's, no, that's fine. You don't have to agree with me. So with all humility, verse 2 is with all humility. So your walk is to be in the manner of the calling. It's to be with humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So again, he's talking there about community. 
And again, I will suggest that one of the things that they're having a problem with is perhaps not community within their own clique in Revelation. In other words, I'm sure they've got a scholarly clique that they're all good to each other. I'm suggesting it has to do with good to others. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So what is this one hope? So you are called to the hope that belongs to your call. So you're, what are you suggesting the hope is? Well, let, let, me, let me do a little grammar. Let's, let's do a little grammar. Who is hoping here? The addressees of the letter. So the ones who are reading the letter are doing the hoping. What are they hoping about? Or what are they hoping for? Salvation? Service that they're called to? Could be. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that the hope is the inheritance that he has been talking about in the first half of the letter. Because remember, he said, you were without hope. You were exiled from the commonwealth of Israel without God, without hope. Remember, that was that whole thing in uh, chapters 2 and 3 where he is explaining that we, in fact, have an inheritance with Israel. So I'm suggesting that the hope that we're talking about here is that inheritance. Oh, it includes a whole bunch of stuff, but yeah. I, yeah, I mean, there's the, and, you know, a lot of the components that you've talked about are certainly included in that hope, but I'm suggesting to you that the hope itself is the inheritance that he was talking about in the first part of the letter. Yes, yes. It, and being let into the commonwealth carries with it an inheritance in the world to come. And then the works that you do basically determine your reward in the world to come. So, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Messiah's gift. So, again, he's speaking of unity, both the unity of God and the unity of the body. It sort of goes back to the, the psalm, you know, Hinema Tov, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together. And the idea here is unity, and when the body is unified, it is pleasing to the Father, and then, of course, it is more powerful and more able to do stuff. So he's calling for unity in the body, just as there is unity in God. So verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Messiah's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. We're going to camp out there for a minute. That is a loose quotation from Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is a psalm, I think of David, yeah. And it is a glorifying and exalting of God. And the place where the paragraph starts, if you will, that this comes from is in verse 15. So I'm in Psalm 68, verse 15. O mountain of God, mountains of Bashan, O many peaked mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. All right, so where's Bashan and what's the mountain of Bashan? 
Bashan is up in the Golan. It's on the other side of the Jordan, north, towards Syria. What do you suppose the mountain of Basham would be? Mount Hermon, right? That's the dominant mountain there. It's the dominant mountain in the entire region. So why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever? We'll come back to that. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that God may dwell there. Notice that it isn't the same. It's close, but it's not the same. So in Psalm 68, it's receiving gifts among men. In Paul, it is giving gifts. The direction of the gifts is reversed. That's the translation of the Hebrew in Psalm 68. Now I will read for you what my commentary here says, which is interesting. Psalm 68:18 was referred to by Paul in Ephesians 4:8, which we just read. However, rather than quoting the Hebrew, Paul apparently followed the Jewish interpretation of the day, which is the Targum. Remember, Paul is a Pharisee. He's a Torah scholar, which in Pharisaic understanding means a student of the works of the rabbis and the works of the sages. So the Jewish interpretation of the day, the Targum, which paraphrased this verse as follows. You did ascend to the firmament, O prophet Moses. You led captivity captive. You taught the words of the law you gave, gift to the sons of men. So the Targum interprets this you as being Moses. You, Moses, ascended on high. And you led captivity captive, and you taught the words of the law, which is to say you gave the gift of the law to men. And what this particular commentary is opining is that rather than quoting Psalm 68, which he is close but doesn't, Paul is actually quoting from the Jewish literature here. I have no idea whether that's true or not, but clearly Psalm 68 as written in the Hebrew doesn't match what Paul says in Ephesians. The direction of giving is reversed for one thing. So, anyway, back to Ephesians. So now let's, let's go back to Ephesians 4.8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts among men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So now, if this commentary is correct, that Paul's memory of it, you know, the, the, the thing that he learned uh, under Gamaliel was this interpretation where it's speaking of Moses, what Paul is now doing is making the switch and saying, yeah, it's Yeshua. So, verse 9 again, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? 
He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, which I think is called the fivefold ministry. Is that what most people call that? Yeah, we'll get there and come back to that in a minute. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Messiah, until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Messiah, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes, period. What he's saying here is that he, who he? Yeshua, Messiah. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So what he did is he ordained these five skill sets, if you will, temperaments, whatever you want to call them, for the purpose of building the body. That's their job. So they should be building the body and that they should be growing people who are mature in understanding of the word so that the people will no longer be tossed about by every son of a gun with a three-day pass and a briefcase. And of course, when we get to Galatians, he's going to be addressing exactly this same problem. you got these new believers in Galatia, and some guys come up from Jerusalem with a three-day pass and a briefcase and say, yeah, I know what that Paul said, but this is what's really true. And so what Paul is saying is that the that apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are to make sure that that doesn't happen. So that we're, and, and remember, by the way, what is this sort of, oh, by the way, compliment that Messiah gives to the church in Ephesus after he slaps them around for having lost their first love? They don't follow the doctrine. Uh, actually, I've said that backwards. What's the thing that he compliments them on first? You, 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 you have people who come through saying, claiming to be apostles. You check them out and you prove that they're false. So again, here he's describing the mechanism that Messiah puts in place to keep the body from being led astray. And the Ephesians do really well at that. So again, this correlates, if you will, with revelation because the thing he compliments them on is just exactly this that that they have got this structure in place and it's functioning properly so apostles prophets evangelists shepherds and teachers what are those well let's let's talk about them apostles what's their job okay well what what it actually means is they're the ones who are to gather get them all get them all rounded up and stuffed into one rucksack so their job is to go out and gather prophets. Prophets see. Prophets are, are, are reconnaissance. They're, they're the ones who see things spiritually. That's what they are. They're, they're ones who can see into the spirit, can see things that are happening, perhaps in the future. Okay, Certainly in the Old Testament, prophets did that. It can also simply be they can see you know, when, when you're praying for somebody and all of a sudden something comes into your mind and starts, stuff come, comes out of your mouth that you hadn't planned to say, well, that happens to me a lot. And that's prophecy. That is me saying something I don't know, but I hope is from God. 
I've, I've learned to trust it because the first few times it happened, I said, where did that come from? It, and, I, and I've learned to trust it, but that's prophecy. It can either be knowledge of something that isn't otherwise out on the table, or it can be seeing deep into time. But the prophets are your scouts. They're your headlights. They enable you to see what's going on. Evangelists. They're your sales force. Larry is an evangelist. He's a salesman. And he doesn't much care whether he sells tortillas or the word of God. Because that, that, no, that's his calling. That's his nature. I'm not, I'm not being at all flip here. It's a, it's a very valuable gift. That's what an evangelist is. He's a salesman. Then we have shepherds. They guard the sheep. Their job is to guard the flock. Okay, they're the sheep dogs. And then you have teachers. And their job is to instruct and grow the flock in maturity. And those are all different gifts. And, you know, some people have a couple of them, but I don't know of anybody that's got them all. Yeah, I mean, these are, yes, these are gifts. They're, these are, or better yet, these are callings. And if God calls you to be one of these things, he will give you the gift of being able to do it. The dumbest thing you can do is to desire somebody else's gift. They don't need two of him, because if you're one of him, they only want one of you and something's missing. But in our humanity, you know, we, ooh, look at him. He's wearing the fancy robe and standing up on the stage, and everybody's looking at him. I want to be that way. But if that's not what you're called to do, it's not what you're supposed to do. The, the point is, everybody can do all of these things to some degree, but there is typically one or two of them that you're actually called to. All right, we're going to finish the paragraph, but not the chapter. So I'm all the way down to verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Messiah, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And again, talking about the body and what we're talking these five offices or five ministries or gifts that we've talked about are for the purpose of building the body. Mine stops at a paragraph, or a sentence probably in yours, at the end of verse 16. I'm not going to go on to verse 17. I've, I've got a whole other, two more paragraphs to the next chapter, so I'm not going to get that far. Anybody have any other questions? Would somebody like to close in prayer? Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this study and would like to hear more, go to www.crimsonthread.com. There you'll find this study in its entirety, as well as other resources for studying the scriptures from a messianic perspective. Thank you and shalom.